All right, everyone. Welcome to church. It's good to see you guys. We're going to start our time this morning listening to God's word call us to worship by remembering just who God is and where he stands as the reigner, the authority above all of our lives, above all of this world. Let's listen to Romans 8, verse 31. It says this, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What a promise. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Let's rejoice in this love as we sing together. Lord, we, we are gathered as your church. God, we're gathered to sing your praise. We're gathered to hear your word preached to us. Lord, we want to do this with joy. Lord, so fill our hearts, fill our mouths with song as we sing. Receive our praise, O oh God. Sing with joy now, our God is for us. The Father's love is a strong and mighty fortress. Raise your voice now, no love is greater. Who can stand against us if our God is for us? Strong. 
Listening to Romans 8, it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It's his love that demonstrates to us how we are to love. And that's what we've been hearing on Sundays the last several weeks. But just felt particularly uh, burdened to, to want to sing this morning about just all that's going on in the world. You know, we've been, we've been having the world fall apart in a lot of ways uh, to us. But one thing is sure, and that is that God reigns supreme he reigns, he's in authority over all the chaos. And, and this God, this God is the God who chooses to love us. He chooses to pour grace upon us. He chooses in all of our weaknesses and all of our mistakes that we make and all of our shortcomings, he chooses to love us. He does that through his son, Jesus. And so maybe you're here this morning, you, I don't know, maybe the Lord just wants to remind you that he loves you. That there's nothing that you have done this past week that can separate you in Christ from his love. So maybe you have done stuff this week that, that you feel guilty about, that you know was not pleasing to the Lord. Confess that to him. Let him know that you're aware that you've not obeyed him, that you've not submitted to him. And don't be afraid. If you're in Christ, if you're a believer, don't be afraid. Run to him. Run to his throne, as Hebrews says, of co with confidence. The throne of grace. And receive his love. We look to you, we 
Yesterday morning to send a message to my covenant group, having been away from them for seemingly forever, uh, the Lord gave me these words and uh, I believe they may be for the body as well. We've been out of town for the past two weeks, yet it seems like it's been months. This peculiar season we are in, lockdown, mask wearing, temperature taking, continual bad news seeing, unable to gather with brothers and sisters in Christ, virus spreading, unrest growing, half church filling, 
and now a heat wave on us. Yuck. But God, we must remember he is sovereign over all the malaise of our times and he has it under his control. Yes. He is watching over his children right now. He is working all things together for our goods. Romans 8:28. In spite of what we see, hear, or even feel in this natural world. And this is a call for us to supernatural faith for all believers. If he is God, and we know he is, and his word is true, and we know it is, then we can be confident in this. He is for us, never against us. He will supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory. Philippians 4.19 He has imparted to each of us the wonderful, mighty Holy Spirit. And his love has been shed abroad in our hearts. God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Romans 5.5 5. And his love, which is ours to apprehend because of the Spirit within us, is this amazing love expressed in 1 Corinthians 13. How blessed we are. This love is not of the world. It is heaven-sent love that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. So rejoice and be glad. We are children of the King. Oh, praise the
robes of white the blazing sun shall pierce the night and i will rise among the saints my gaze transfixed on jesus never tire of singing your praise or you, you will never tire of making sure that your promises come to pass or you'll never tire of, of showing love toward us or in patience and kindness with us or would we never tire of singing your praise or being grateful for your mercy or would we be a church filled with people amazed by this grace can't help but open their mouths to sing and to celebrate all that you've done for us in Christ. Lord, so we give you our praise. We pour it out to you, Lord. And it's one thing for us to do that here gathered in this room. It's another for us to live our lives by pouring out praise to you. 
And so I pray for us to do that as well. Lord, this, this world needs to hear the praise of God. It needs to know who you are, and it needs to see people who genuinely have been changed by you. Lord, we get to be that kind of hope. Lord, so use us in this, these ways, Lord, we pray. It's in your name that we sing and that we celebrate. Good morning, Lakeview Church. How is everyone doing? It is great to be with you today on this Lord's Day. Uh, my name is uh, Fisherman Ron, and welcome to this episode of Crap. Wait, that's not right. Uh, my name is actually Ronald, but this week I got to play a character called Fisherman Ron on what is probably our favorite week in the year, which is VBS. Now, this year was a little, yeah. This year was a little different than most years. Um, I think Keith mentioned last week that, that maybe for decades, uh, it's been that long where every year in the summer, uh, one week in the summer, we gather hundreds of kids here and uh, have this wonderful event called BBS where we teach them the Bible, uh, proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and, and influence them with the, the saving message of Jesus and their family in prayer that they would come to repentance and faith in Christ. Well, obviously, with everything that's happening um, in the world, uh, the limitations that we would have in our gatherings, we had to do something different this year. So we went virtual. Now, why am I bringing this up during the tithes and offering segment of our worship service? I'm sure you were wondering that. Um, well, for this reason. When we met a couple of months ago to discuss VBS, um, we met upstairs, and I remember Hope Roberts, our VBS director, asked us a very interesting question. The question she asked us was, what can we do? Not, can we have VBS this year? Now, the difference in the question was, was we all understood that back in February when everything got shut down, we had to pivot many of our ministries and we had to learn how to go virtual, which meant uh, purchasing equipment, which meant purchasing software, which meant investing in resources to continue doing the kingdom expanding work here at Lakeview. And we have been able to do that. The investments that we've been making all year round in technological upgrades and everything that you can watch through stream now, has been as a direct product of your faithfulness in giving to this church, which has allowed us to have meetings like that and not be frustrated that we can't have a VBS, but rather look at it, how can we use the tools and resources that we've been able to invest in to continue doing ministry at Lakeview. So that's the connection, folks. Thank you for partnering with us. Thank you for continuing to be faithful. And I want to encourage you to continue doing that. Continue being faithful in the giving of the tithes and the offerings. It helps us as a church continue in the work of God. And we've made it easy for you. There's a number of different ways you could give through the website, through the mobile app, bill pay through your bank, mail a check. But this past week, we, 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 we looked at some of the stats. Um, we did VBS every day. We put out a 30, 45, 30-minute 30 video just about. 
uh, and we got uh, about a thousand individual views throughout the whole week. So, so folks, I want to encourage you. Hopefully, this is an encouragement that the Lord would in, in, in bring in your heart, uh, just a continuation to giving. Let's let's pray together to the Lord. Father, thank you for what you are doing, Lord, in the midst of a time when doing is hard, Lord. This is a unique season for the life of this church, Lord, but your spirit continues to work in the hearts of those who make Lakeview their home, Father. We are grateful for what your spirit is bringing forth out of our folks, out of us, and we pray, Lord, that you would continue to do that, Father. We pray blessings on VBS, Father, that those messages, Lord, those conversations, Father, those seeds that were planted in those young hearts, Lord, we entrust them to your spirit, Father, and we just pray that new life would be birthed as a result of these efforts that we so enjoy doing this past week. Thank you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So a couple quick announcements for you guys um, connected to that theme of what we're able to, to do as a result of the investing in, in, in YouTube and, and um, all our virtual offerings. If you have not liked our YouTube page, uh, you go to youtube.com forward slash Lakeview Christian Center and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Uh, there's a whole host of resources you can find on that channel. And back by popular demand is one new resource you will find in our YouTube channel. So a number of you have been asking us, emailing us, texting us, knocking on our door saying, when is School of the Word going to be back? Well, we know Peter has been asking that question. Um, and, uh, and I have too, and many of us have as well. Well, School of the Word is back, has been back, and is going to be starting a new series uh, on the prophet Micah in the Old Testament. So David Batten has just been incredible in his teaching these past several weeks, and he's going to start a fresh study uh, in the book of Micah. And you can access that fresh study through the app, but you can also access that through so the sub subscribing on our YouTube account. Uh, and then finally, um, Pastor Evan is not here, but he asked me to let you guys know that youth camp is actually still taking place. So July 22nd through 25th, um, for all of those of you who are youth, uh, tell your parents to um, go ahead and register you for that. And you can e email Evan for more details, of course, or come talk to me. But youth camp is still something we will be doing this year. Uh, details on our website and on our app. Having said all that, Pastor Keith, bring us the word, brother. Thank you, Ronald. Good morning, and good morning to those of you guys who can't be here with us. We so miss seeing you face-to-face, -face, or at least half a face to half a face. Um, you know, it, it, Ronald mentioned just, again, gratitude for the way in which you guys have always empowered ministry in so many different ways that God enables us to do that. Uh, so now I guess when you stick a lot of things online, you get a lot of feedback from people. So, you know, just recently, and we've gotten feedback from folks in uh, Jacksonville, Florida, Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, we've got some good friends watching in Birmingham this morning who sent me something last night. Uh, folks in South Carolina, uh, just all over the place who are connecting with us because they're at home and uh, unable to attend their own church, as many of them. And so they're connecting with us, but you guys have made that possible. Well, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, those of you who have been tuning in to us and walking with us, 
you know, we've been studying through the book of Corinthians uh, for over a couple of years now, and we have gotten to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and have slowed to a snail's pace, as though the rest of it wasn't a snail's pace, because um, there's just a lot here in this chapter. And so we've called this little sub-study of 1 Corinthians uh, a love story. I started to call it a summer of love and recognize only the hippies among us would get that. Uh, so, but I, I do want to start off talking about that in just a second. But, but here's, here's the, the, the thing I'm really aware of just as a pastor, but, but just also just as a human being, just walking in life, doing life with people, growing up, having experiences, having relationships of my own and seeing other people do the same. Um, love is this incredible thing that none of us want to do life without it. It's powerful. It's a treasure. But I think all of us are very, very aware of how wrong it goes. It just goes wrong. It fails to deliver. It doesn't show up the way we thought it would. It doesn't last. It was one thing for a time, and then it turned into something else. And so if I were were here this morning just asking you before we dig into this word this morning, think for a second, how is it that you wish that love would just show up in a greater way in your life? Or maybe that's a past wish. Maybe in the past something really terrible happened and you're living in the recovery of that because just love didn't show up in that moment. Maybe you weren't raised in a family where love was prevalent and you experienced it, the comfort, the care, the encouragement that it brings. Maybe you've been through a past marriage. Maybe you're in a marriage right now. Maybe the exchange between you and your children uh, just has been something that hasn't left you with a sweet taste of what love really is. And you, you feel you're on the outside of it. You feel like it's, it, it didn't deliver all that it claimed it was going to be. You had high hopes for having a family and all that that would mean and just the wonder of it all. And then you're on the other side of that or you're in the midst of it and it's just not doing it for you. Well, why is that? Why does this great thing seem to have the wheels come off of it, quite honestly, so easily? And in today, uh, today we are in perhaps the worst case in this, carry- this, this scenario. You know, we, we, public demonstration of love between people is at perhaps an all-time low. We, we are harsh, abrasive, rude, territorial, divisive. I mean, just anything but love would be the thing that I would describe life in the modern setting. So I've titled the message today, Self-Insistence in the Summer of Love. You guys, you're old enough, you remember this term, the Summer of Love. It comes from the summer of 1967. Uh, And in that day, a very famous song was written for that summer for an international event by the Beatles called All You Need Is Love. Uh, And I'm going to actually politely differ differ with the Beatles on that. I think you need a little bit more than that. But here's the summer of love's background. Uh, John Lennon's lyrics were deliberately simplistic to allow for the show's international audience and capture the utopian ideals associated with the summer of love, right? Love is an idealistic thing for us. The single topped the sales charts in Britain, the United States, and many other countries and became an anthem for the counterculture's embrace of flower power philosophy. Brian Epstein, the band's manager, said, of all you need is love is, it was an inspired song, and they really wanted to give the world a message. The nice thing about it is that 
it cannot be misinterpreted. It is a clear message that saying that love is everything. And the summer of love was a social phenomenon that occurred during mid-1967 when as many as 100,000 people, mostly young people, sporting hippie fashions of dress and behavior, converged in San Francisco's neighborhood of Haight-Ashbury. Phil, did you live there at this time? Just curious. Phil's got some history that you guys, the guy who gave the word this morning, he's got some history in this area that's relevant. Um, More broadly, the summer of love encompassed the hippie music, drug, anti-war, and free love scene throughout the American West Coast and as far away as New York City. Right, so this is the summer of love. It's the height of the 1960s protests, the civil rights movement, the anti-war demonstrations, violence, police clashes, cities are burnings, and within less than a year, Martin Luther King will be assassinated and Bobby Kennedy will be assassinated. Here we are, 53 years later, and it doesn't feel too different than the summer of love, does it? Apparently this magical concept called love is a little bit harder of a fix than the song might make it out to be. Robert Fontenot commented on the song. He said, John Lennon came up with this song supposedly constructed around a world every language understood. This one word, love. Then and now, it seems as though we don't quite understand that word the same way. We use it, but does it mean the same thing to everybody who picks it up? So Paul pulls up to the Corinthian church and notices the life that they're living. And in 1 Corinthians 13, he decides you guys need a much better working definition for this word, love. Because it looks as though from the life you're living, it looks as though your life lacks this quality of love. Right, so in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, our verse that we've been working through slowly, is verse 4 through 7, Paul further defines love. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. And this is what I want us to focus on today. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Let's pray. Father, those are rich descriptions, especially when I can think being on the receiving end of them. Lord, it does something to comfort and care for my own soul to know that people, you, would love me in a way that's patient and kind. That you would endure with me. That you would not be irritated by me. That those around me would not insist on their way at my expense. Oh, Lord, that sounds incredible. And it is also what I'm called to as well. 
And that's where the trouble seems to come. I don't mind receiving any of those things. I seem to have a problem giving them away. So Lord, we long for this utopian word to show up in our lives. But there just seems to be a problem seeing it arrive among us. Help us, God. That's what this word does. It helps us. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to focus today on on the fact that love is liberation from self-insistence. That's what love is in that little phrase. Love is liberation. How would you like to be free from your own self-insistence? Because that's what's primarily at work when love breaks down, is the fact that between me and some other party, some other group, some other individual, my insistence and their insistence aren't getting on the same page here. And so we can say love all we want, but if I can't overcome that, that love won't become a reality between us. And that's true in marriages, that's true in friendships, that's true if you walk with people in business settings, whatever, extended family members. Now remember something here, and I've said this numerous times, but it it, it bears repeating over and over and over again. Paul is writing these words to the church. The Greek terminology, terminology of ekklesia is the words called out ones. It is those who formerly were a part of the world scene. They were in the race of Adam. They were part of this world. And God reached into that group and formed another group that he called the church. Paul turns his attention to that group and writes this letter. Be careful that you don't read the Bible in a way that it's not written and intended to be read. This is not a letter Paul wrote to the Summer of Love Festival to every hippie and every individual gathered with their own ideas, their own lordship, their own God that they serve in their own way that they have defined for their own lives, and then they're just going to pick up the Apostle Paul's words and say, hey, this is pretty cool. Hey, man, chill, man. Love is patient, dude. You just pick that up and it's for anybody. Paul is writing to a particular people who have something in particular going on in them. Paul doesn't start writing about love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He's been writing about the necessities. This is why all you need is love is an inaccurate description. You need the rest of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians, not just what he said in chapter 13. Paul says something profound back in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that I want to back us up and pick up on because it's the same writer, the same letter that Paul writes to the Corinthians earlier on. So 1 Corinthians chapter 2 you have a Bible and you want to look in your own Bible, this is Paul installing other truths and thoughts that have to be with us when we go to pick up this word love. So in chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says, now we, as opposed to they, by the way, right? We in this group that God has created called the church, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words. Words like love. Not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Stop. Is this word love spiritual or not? 
or can it just be picked up and the copyright can be used by anybody who can spell the word L-O-V-E? Is this a spiritual word? Is this a concept that is being described here? We impart this in words. Love one another. Uh Uh-oh, what does that mean? Does it mean the way you were treated growing up? Does it mean your personality being spent on others? Does it mean your style? Does it mean this trend? Does it mean you support some idea? Does that what love means? Because that sounds to me like those are words taught by human wisdom. Human experience gathered along the way of life fills in the word love, and that's what we use. But Paul said, we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. In other words, not everybody at the love fest is going to get this, but those who are spiritual. Verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So you have two different sets of people in this passage. You have those who are going to receive a spiritual revelation, who can interpret a spiritual revelation, who can come to understand and be affected by a spiritual revelation because they are not merely natural. They are spiritual. And you have another group in this passage who is described as a natural person. And in verse 14, that natural person is without the Spirit. That is all over planet Earth today. It is people. You can be having a conversation about love and be talking about two very different things, according to this passage. This is the same writer who's going to write chapter 13, and he's going to qualify where his word comes from right there. Verse 15, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Something amazing has happened to us by the Spirit that we have access to the mind of Christ. This is not true of everyone. And then he continues in his chapter 3, verse 1. But I, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. Here's two groups. Everybody gets to be in a group here. Spiritual people and people of the flesh. Spiritual people, he used the the, the term natural people. You are either a spiritual person, which we understand we back away from the Bible when we read it. A spiritual person is someone who has been born again by the Holy Spirit, who has received the Spirit of God into their own soul. So they are joined to God spiritually. And then there is a natural person or a people of the flesh. But then Paul's going to say, you know what? You guys, I'm staring out at you Corinthians. And you remind me a lot of natural people. You know, the way you're living, the way you're doing this thing. Now, I know you're not. I know you're believers. But you're acting like people who don't have the spirit. You're acting like people of the flesh. This is the issue that he brings to them. As infants in Christ. And I'm like, yeah, you got the spirit, but you like have not grown up much at all. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, 
you are not ready. For you are still of the flesh. How can I tell? Well, well, while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, well, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? I can't resist this. Can, can anybody resist this at this moment? Picking teams? Everybody recognizing right now? Everybody's got a gun to their head being told to pick teams right now? Whose side are you on in this issue? Whose side are you on in this issue? Who are you going to vote for in November? Right? This is what it's all about right now in our culture. Paul's going to pull this conversation into a category of, you know, when you get divided amongst yourselves and what kicks in is jealousy and strife. Now, remember, he's going to pick these words up later on when he describes what love is because love is not envious, which is the twin brother to jealousy. Love is not arrogant or rude. Right? Love doesn't have these qualities. So this is the same concept that Paul's going to pick up when he gets to chapter 13. And, he, and he's basically going to say this. Hey, here's the problem, guys. There's this thing called love. And love is not these things. But when you're of the flesh, you can't avoid these things. That's what your behavior looks like. When you're of the flesh. So that's my whole premise here. Is we can talk about love, but if you have no idea, when I say whether you're of the flesh and of the spirit, you have no idea what I'm talking about, we can't talk about love anymore. Does that make sense? Because for Paul, the issue of these are words imparted not by human wisdom, but by the spirit, and they must receive insight by the Spirit. So when I become a person of the flesh, pulling off love becomes impossible. So I could stand up here today and say, hey guys, wouldn't it be great if we just love? Come on, husbands and wives, come on, y'all just get along now, man. You know God loves you, you love each other. I could I can install all those thoughts, and there's nothing wrong with that. And there are moments where we should say that. But the real question in the room for us and for the Corinthians is: why isn't love happening? Husbands and wives, if we installed the video camera, we started every Sunday morning with showing the highlight reel of your week at home. Played it so that it could be live streamed and you guys could watch from your own sofas while you're fighting at home. I mean, if we did that, right, the question would be, why, what's the deal? Where is love? Why is love not functioning? And you just transfer that into all kinds of relationships in the church, in our lives, in our extended family, between brothers and sisters. Why is it not functioning? Well, Paul says, you know, you guys are dysfunctional in these categories because you're of the flesh. We're going to need to do something about that because if you can't get free of that, you're not going to do the love thing either. And I can sing a great song. All you need is love, all I want. But if you're shackled to your flesh and you can't seem to get past that, you're not going to do love. Not when you have to endure. Not when you have to actually be patient. Not when love actually gets hard. You're going to need something beyond your own strength and your own abilities to pull it off. And that's what Paul's installing here. So 
all you need is love, but if love is 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and following, then all you need is patience and kindness and to not envy and to not boast and to not be arrogant and to not be rude. And all you need is to be rid of irritability and being resentful. All you need is to bear things and endure all kinds of things. All you need is to put away self-insistence. That's all you need. All you need is to put away self-insistence. Can we all sing it together? All you need is to put away self-insistence. But that's a little bit of a problem, isn't it? Right? All you need is a remedy to the flesh. That's all you need. You got one of those? You got some kind of power in and of yourself to overcome the power problem you have with yourself so that love can actually show up in our midst? Listen, you know, there was a lot of singing. There was a lot of signs. There was love with peace signs. I love the fact that they picked two fruit of the spirits to feature back in the 60s, love and peace. That was kind of them. But they were a little bit uh, poorly informed about all they needed. Right, so you had a group that looked like they were, they were into love, weren't they? I mean, they were, they were anti-war. They didn't want people dying in Vietnam. There were bullets and there were guns and there were explosions and there was bloodshed. And they were absolutely sure that love would not do that. So love was against that. Love was anti. Love was full of protesting. Love was full of opposition to ideas. I wonder, right, as a 56-year-old parent at this moment who's got kids who, have, who are filling the range of the hippies who were hanging out with Phil and protesting in San Francisco, um, I wonder if they thought how, how loved their parents felt in that moment. When you have sacrificed, raised, and invested in me your whole life, but I just turned 20. I just turned 22, and I don't want anything to do with you. I want to go hang out with a hippie commune that I don't even know these people. And, but they're everything that I'm about. And they're everything that matters to me. And I'm going to go live with them. And, and you're going to wonder whether I've died of a drug overdose, who I've slept with, and whether I'm pregnant or not. I wonder how loving that felt. Right? It felt like I can, I can carry a sign at the summer of love that says, love, man, love. Really, is that what you're doing right now? Is that what the generation before you feels like as, as you depict the things that they have valued and lived for as these less than human activities? Now, I get you found problems with them. I get that. You're going to have to figure out a way to work through that. I just wonder if they're feeling the love right now. I'm just wondering, is this a good definition for love? Because it can figure out that it's wrong for the violence taking place in the lives of, of, of Vietnamese in the Vietnam War. But they can't figure out that it's wrong for the violence that the unborn are going to be suffering in the wombs of women. They can't figure that out. Do you guys remember the timing of this? The summer of love is 1967. Roe v. Wade is 1973. However, Roe v. Wade gets filed in Texas as a court case in 1969. It was the age in which love made sense when I define it as 
my freedom of expression emotionally and attachment to another human being that involves sexual expression. That's free love. What about the love of responsibility and commitment? What about that love? What about that person that you slept with who is now pregnant that you're not going to take any responsibility to walk with them in that? And and since you're going to turn their life circumstances into something that's upside down, uh, they're going to pursue an abortion because you lack a love that's committed to the need that is now in their life to raise that child. What, What about that love? Does anybody want to define love that way? All right, here's the events. Summer of Love says, with the passage of the California Therapeutic Abortion Act in 1967, in June, by the way, of 1967, abortion became essentially legal on demand in that state. Pregnant women in other states could travel to California to obtain legal abortions if they could afford to. A flight from Dallas to Los Angeles was nicknamed the abortion special because so many of its passengers were traveling for that reason. There were prepackaged trips known as the non-family plan. Why is it that love can figure out you got to show up in this category and this category and then go blind to other categories? Why is it that love can do that? Well, that sounds like the love that gets constructed out of human wisdom. It picks aspects of love to its own liking. It makes love report to itself. It doesn't answer to God it answers to my preferences. And so it shows up in my categories. So I wrote in your outline there, no, you need more than love. You need the Holy Spirit. You need a means of escaping the power of the flesh and you need to learn to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. Because the Corinthians actually had the Spirit, but they didn't know how to walk by the Spirit in these areas. So that was their problem. So Paul doesn't arrive in chapter 13 and ignore or forget about all that he's already written down in Corinthians through earlier chapters. Love has these crazy and amazing qualities and abilities because love's source is the Holy Spirit. Why can love be patient? Why can it be kind? Why can it endure? Why is it not irritable? Why does it not seek its own? Because you're going to get psyched up. We're about to play some really hip jazzed up music that's going to pump you up and all of a sudden you're going to, you're going to love, you're going to, you're going to put on some kind of power to do this? Why can love do what's in 1 Corinthians 13? Because it's empowered by the Holy Spirit to do it. And God is love. God never has a problem pulling off love. Never. We might need some help from him. He might be our only hope in this category, Right? So let me ask you some questions here. I put these in your outline because I I feel like the mood of our world totally is ignoring these spiritual realities. And I'm concerned that the church in general, which has become less and less of a Bible reading group of individuals and a world engulfing information group, is overlooking some things and has strange expectations in this hour. Questions? Do you have high expectations that the world is going to suddenly stop having abortions? That suddenly it will set aside its its own self-interest and embrace a life of personal sacrifice so that someone else can receive the benefit? Are are you thinking that that that's just going to go off in the world? That, That suddenly 
People who had their own motivation, their own self-insistence five minutes ago just needed to have you say a certain thing to them. And suddenly, self-insistence is turned off. And, and the commitment required of me to take a life and to walk with that life for the rest of my life, am I going to be willing to do that? Just because why? Why would? Do you think it's just that simple? Do you have high expectations that the world is going to suddenly stop being racist? If you've read world history for a few minutes, all you find is one group against another group over and over and over for whatever basis, conquered by one, same ethnicity, but conquered by them and then oppressed by them or different ethnicities or different socioeconomic status so that the people who have overpower the people who have not. And these guys get treated one way and these guys get treated a different way. Tribalism. Today we call it racism. Do, do you have expectations that suddenly the world's just going to stop doing that? This thing called the flesh is a serious player. Do you have high expectations that the rich are going to suddenly want to equal the playing field of finances? Suddenly, right? People who have been building a world for the sake of its own security, its own advancement, and their own interest, companies or stocks, et cetera, et cetera, are suddenly going to just say, hey, sure, give it all to the people who have less than me so that we can all get on an even playing field. Anybody thinking that's going to really happen? Do you have expectations that if the poor became rich, they would act differently than the current rich people? Do you have expectations that the people who lack power would not abuse their power if you gave greater power to them? Um, turn to Matthew chapter 18 with me. I'm going to show you that Jesus didn't have this expectation. But while you're turning there, let me give you this thought. 53 years ago, the hope for change was in a concept called love. It would appear... That concept is not universally understood nor universally attainable. It would appear that humanity has a problem with not insisting on its own way. That just would seem to be a problem that we have. Jesus recognized that. Matthew chapter 18, verse 23. <clears throat> Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all he had and payment to be made. This is how slavery operated in that day. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Why is it that self-interest is not so easily cured among us? 
This guy was empowered. This guy was facing the total disruption of his life as he knew it. He was going to be sold off. His family would be sold off separately, and they would be off in slavery serving to pay the debt that he had created in his life. And you'd think being released from that would have empowered this man to be a different man. He turns right around and with the power that he has, abuses the next guy in line. Mark chapter 9. This, this, is, this is what's inside of man. This is why the gospel is necessary. Mark chapter 9. These are a little better group of folks here. There would be the 12 apostles. Verse 33, and they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you guys discussing on the way? But they kept silent. They didn't want to tell Jesus what they were talking about. Apparently they knew they shouldn't have been talking about this. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Sounds like a little bit of a problem with self-interest, right? And not as though Mark wanted to leave that point alone. So the Holy Spirit inspires him, hey, just one chapter later, bring that up again. Make sure people get this is what's in the best of them. In James, chapter 10, verse 35, and James and John, these guys have got a little bit of a resume, don't they? James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, Well, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one on your right hand and one on your left in your glory. Can, can we all recognize, I mean, I, I respect these men. That is James and John. I, I put them way ahead of me on the food chain. And they're walking with Jesus on a daily basis. They are seeing this amazing son of God put on humanity and put on a demonstration that is inspiring. And they fail to be inspired by the God who humbles himself and takes the form of a servant. And he's going to have to turn around and explain that to them. Because they want Greatness, self-advancement, self-interest, self-ambition doesn't die easily. Not even in those who walked with Jesus. John Stott says, it seems clear that James and John wanted power as well as honor. They rather fancied themselves with a throne each. The world loves power. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, said Jesus, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Was he thinking of Rome, whose emperors had coins made featuring their head with the inscription, he who deserves adoration? Or was he thinking of the Herods, who, though only puppet kings, ruled like tyrants? The lust for power is endemic to our fallenness. All you need is love, right? I don't know. Do you need any more than that? To overcome the lust for power? This is Jesus' description of, this is what awaits you as my disciples in this world. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of 
men. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. Brother will deliver brother over to death, father his own child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. And when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. You will be hated by all for your association with Jesus. Just think about that. Think about who Jesus was in the life that he lived in contact with people. Couldn't avoid this thought. John Stott says, he, speaking of Jesus, despised nobody, disowned nobody. On the contrary, he went out of his way to honor those whom the world dishonored and to accept those who the world rejected. He spoke courteously to women in public. He invited little children to come with to him. He spoke words of hope to Samaritans and Gentiles. He allowed leprosy sufferers to approach him and a prostitute to anoint and kiss his feet. He made friends with the outcasts of society and ministered to the poor and hungry. In all this diversified ministry, his compassionate respect for human beings shone forth. Yet, if you get around my name, you will be hated by others. Will they love you? All you need is love, right? They're just going to smoke a duber with you and love you, man, because you're like me. Is that really what's going to happen? How do you explain the fact that there's a mob that stands before Jesus, who was that Jesus, and says, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him? How do you explain that kind of hatred in their heart for a person who was only known that way in public? Is there a secret switch somewhere? We're just going to turn around and tell these people, you see how easy it was for a little voice to get passed along into a crowd. People, there were people in that audience who had seen and heard the amazing things that Jesus had done. He was the rescuer of the oppressed. He was the lover of the down and out. And they stood in that crowd and a little whisper came and another little whisper came. And next thing you know, all their voices were saying, crucify him, crucify him. How do people turn that way so easily? There's this little thing in the world called evil. You're not just going to need love. You're going to need some way to overcome evil. Otherwise, love is going to sit on a shelf in your life and in everybody else's life around you. You will need more than love. Paul does the same thing that Jesus does. Second Timothy, this is Paul's beware, beware. Actually, this is a list of people. He says, beware, avoid such people as these. He says, understand this, in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Is anybody surprised right now this is a time of difficulty? This is the last days. For people will be lovers of self. Problem number one, self-insistence, lovers of self. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with deceit, conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Paul's 19 descriptives of beware of men. This is what you're getting into. Those men want power. They want life to be a certain way. I'm a big fan of J.R. Tolkien's books, 
the Fellowship of the Ring, Lord of the Rings. He opens the scene of the Fellowship of the Ring, pulling out this aspect of humanity and putting it on display. This is what these, these rings are about, particularly the ring of power was about enticing what was already in man. It mysteriously reached and called for something in man of his own interest for his own good to give him power to get what he wanted. This is how Tolkien opens. He says, it began with the forging of the great rings. Three were given to the elves, immortal, wisest, and fairest of all beings. Seven to the dwarf lords, great miners and craftsmen of the mountain halls. And nine, nine rings were given to the race of men who, above all else, desire power. For within these rings was bound the strength and the will to govern each race. But they were all of them deceived, for another ring was made. Deep in the land of Mordor, in the fires of Mount Doom, the dark lord Sauron forged a master ring in secret. And into this ring, he poured his cruelty, his malice, and his will to dominate all life. And that ring travels through the rest of the book, pulling on something inside of man that's easily corrupted. Matter of fact... One of the most moving scenes for me in the movie is, is when one of the guys who is on the side of the little hobbit who's trying to rescue the world, Frodo, the human named Boromir, he is there to protect from all the evil forces in the world. He's there to protect Frodo, but he gets captured by the ring and he turns on Frodo. And he gets corrupted. The guy you wouldn't think would get corrupted gets corrupted. And the scene for me, this is, a, this is a scene for me, I'm actually choked back the emotion because this scene speaks of a spiritual reality that should scare everybody in the room. After Boromir turns on Frodo, Aragorn, the other human guy in the story at this moment, remember, human beings love power. And Aragorn comes up to Frodo not knowing what's happened. Aragorn says, Frodo. Frodo says, it has taken Boromir. Aragorn says, where is the ring? Frodo says, stay away. And Frodo runs from Aragorn. Aragorn confused, Frodo, I swore to protect you. And Frodo asked the million dollar question, can you protect me from yourself? Are you aware of yourself? Do you know what you're made of? I don't, I don't preach this message in some arrogant way about all the idiots out there who have a problem in this category. You understand, when I read that line, I'm aware of how evil and sin appeals to something in me. That if it came off the leash, what would it do? What would it do to me? What would it do to my wife? What would it do to my children? What would it do to this church? Can I protect you from me? Unfortunately, no, I cannot. I don't have that kind of power. There's a reason why Jesus says, beware of men. Because he knows 
the corruption that the fall has brought to us and the power of sin and evil that are in our world. But there is a hope. There is a hope in 1 Corinthians. And I'm pausing here on this, and I've, I've dug around in this category a little bit because uh, I have a great concern. I wrote it in your outline. I want you to hold on to it. I'm pausing at this point because I think the church is possibly locked outside of experiencing God's love because it is too natural-minded, fleshly, and unfamiliar with the Holy Spirit. And that would be Paul's definition of you are like infants and I couldn't teach you deeper things because you weren't ready for them and you're still not ready. So if you're not ready to learn the things that give way to love, where is love going to be in the church? See, the problem in 1 Corinthians 13 is all the way back in chapter 2 and chapter 3. Are you not living like mere men? like mere human beings out there that don't have anything but their own reasons to do what they do. And as long as I can stay on the good side of your reasons, I'm going to be treated a certain way. But as soon as I get on the wrong side of your reasons, your craving for power and security and significance and self-insistence is going to show up in our relationship. But the hope that's here is the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Right? 1 Corinthians 13, love does not insist on its own way. That's a fact. That's a reality. Spiritually, that is always true. So when I become insistent on my own way, that's a thing of the flesh. That's not a thing of the spirit taking place in me. And unfortunately, we know something about that, right? All right maybe a crash course here in what Mr. Tolkien was trying to unpack from the Bible this super fast so you're going to get whiplash by turning to Romans chapter 7 real quick and, and, and I make no apology as a matter of fact I can't say these points strong enough because we have become a set of human beings who believe so much in human potential that we don't really need God all that much we've got bank accounts we've got technology we're civilized We've got psychology and therapy. We've got all kinds of resources that we turn to rather than recognizing we desperately need God to show up. There are forces at work that nobody's got a pill for, nobody's got a remedy to, nobody's got a philosophy that undoes the power of evil and sin and its ability to tap into my flesh. No one except so I don't know if you know that this is what's going on on the inside of us each and every day, but Romans chapter 7, verse 8. I'm just going to hop, skip through this real quick. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Did you know sin could do that in you? That while you're not looking... It's in the lab, cooking stuff that suddenly is going to show up mysteriously in the form of covetousness. Things you want, things that you crave, a sense of discontent about what you have, demands that you have on others. Where did all that come from? You want something. I have a covetousness about life. I want something. Where did that come from? Did you notice that was happening in you? Did you notice how much that's interfering with your ability to love? Others, well, sin 
seizing an opportunity produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Verse 11, for sin, seizing an opportunity. Did you know sin can seize opportunities? Did you know that? Through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Did you know sin can deceive you as well? Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Adam sold us all out and put us in allegiance with sin and the devil. He made a deal that you can't make go away. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Verse 19, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. If you and I pause and we're humble, we can tell our own story in these categories, can't we? But but do you see something in this passage? Do do you see that you're going to need something in your life more than good intentions? The description by Paul here is good intentions. I want something good. I just can't ever seem to do it. I just can't seem to get past sin that deceives me and works these covetous things in my life. They come with such power that the thing I want to do, I don't do. I do that instead. Can somebody explain this to me? I don't even understand. So I find, verse 21, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. This this is the life that we live. This is why when the world holds out education as the the problem solver to everything, can can I just tell you, you, you'll be smarter, but evil will still lie close at hand. And listen, I know, right? Tune in. Listen, the, the thing that's going to solve all the problems of our world today is, is education. That's why you keep getting insulted by the phrase, the science says, the science says. If you just knew what I knew, if you just had the knowledge that I had, the science, then you would agree with me. Education is not going to solve this problem. Education will not solve racism. I'm not saying it's not helpful to be educated by any means. I'm just saying there's a little bit more going on here. There's this thing called evil. Evil lies close at hand. Can I just tell you, if you're having marriage problems, and I'm a, I'm a person who's going to give you a book. I'm going to give you something to read. I'm going to meet with you and talk you to death for two hours. Can, can I just tell you, that's not going to do it. That's not going to be enough. Now, it might be a part of something, but it's not going to be enough. Evil lies close at hand. The reason why you're having problems in your marriage is because of the flesh and its ability to be corrupted by the little floating ring of Mr. Evil and Mr. Sin. And I can educate, but you're going to need something more than that education to overcome this. In whatever category, love is being disrupted. Verse 23, for But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin 
that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me? That's the question. So I guess you're going to need more than love. You're going to need deliverance as well. Eric, you can come back up here. And here's the ultimate place that we go to. And by the way, this is why the gospel is good news. This is why what Jesus Christ did is not just an optional thing for some people who might like to avail themselves of it. When you get to the place where you are convinced, like Paul, wretched man that I am, I see things that I never do. I see things that I'd like to do. I even agree with a lot of this stuff. I just can't seem to pull it off. I can't break my habits. I can't treat people right. I just can't seem to do this. Wretched man that I am. Who's going to solve that problem? When you get convinced that you're that desperate and that there is only one place to turn, you're finally ready for the gospel. And that's where Paul's response comes from, verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, exclamation point. This frustrated life, this lack of power to overcome, this lack of motivation, not being able to do things that overcome the self-covetousness in my own heart. Thanks be to God. There is a deliverer. It's Jesus Christ. He came and did something to sever that power over me. Verse 1 of chapter 8, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, could not do, cannot empower human flesh to do these things. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. We might actually live the summation of the law to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbors as yourself. Those who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit, which is what Paul said in chapter 2 of Corinthians, this is your problem. You're too fleshly to love each other. You need to walk by the Spirit. This is not a small thing. We crave, pursue, long for this experience of love and yet remain ignorant of how the Holy Spirit operates in us, how God teaches us to put off and put on certain realities, how this can ever come to fruition in our lives is more than the hot topic of today's love. Right, so I'd like to sit down with John Lennon just for a moment, and I've invited Eric to take John Lennon's place for me today and help him rewrite his song. And this is going to be this awkward blend of theology meets musician. Now, if you've ever seen that attempted before, you're going to know those two things don't get along real well because theologians are very wordy and musicians would like things to rhyme and feel a certain way. 
So Eric's helped me to rewrite the Beatles song. And I'm actually going to invite you to sing it. (laughs) Do we have a slide for this? There you go. Apparently we need more than love. That sounds cool and that sounds like the answer to stuff. But I read my Bible. Love is a fruit of the Spirit. It's a supernatural thing. So before I can talk about needing love, I need the Holy Spirit in my life. And that's where all the trouble that lacks love needs to start for any and every one of us. There is no shortcut to love, not this kind of love. So let's stand up together. Let's see how Eric put this into words for us. I'm about to see how Eric does this also. <laughs> he's, he's resenting that I have given him this assignment. I'm going to let him sing, and then we're going to pray after he sings. <laughs> Here we go. All you need is the Holy Spirit. All you need is the Holy Spirit. All you need is the Holy Spirit. Oh, yeah, yes. I don't know the melody. All you need is the Holy Spirit. <laughs> So, how's that part go? That part, how's it go? Yeah. I'm not familiar enough with the, with the melody. Oh, yeah, yeah. All you need is the spirit. Yeah, there it is. All you need is the spirit. I think that is all you need works better. Oh, spirit's all you need. Spirit's all you need. Wanna try one more time? Yeah, let's go. There we go. All you need is the spirit. All you need is the spirit. Spirit's all you need, but that's all you need. All right. All right. <laughs> all right. Let's pray together. Lord, we sang. Our singing is so important. We sang earlier a song that said, Deliver us from evil. Lord, we long for this thing called love. We do. So valuable, so treasured, so wonderful. What a gift you have given to us. But look, love is not something separate from you. Lord, love is bound up in you, the God who is love. And evil and sin are in this world. Lord, we are who Paul was describing in our cry for deliver us. Who will deliver us? Well, Lord, thanks be to God that Jesus Christ came to deliver us from evil that stands in the way of our love, that's been a blockade. So, Lord, we have hope. Lord, in this room right now, those who know the frustration of a love that doesn't get expressed, a love that's gone sideways, a selfishness, a love that looks more like a festival in 1967, than something that is sacrificial and self-denying, a love that is not self-insistent. Lord, here's our hope this morning. This Bible is not a cheerleader book for human beings 
to come up with the best of their own efforts to strive to be better people. Lord, this book declares our bankruptcy and invites us to let you be for us and in us what we could never be for ourselves. So Lord, this morning, I, I take shelter in the thought, who, who will protect my wife from me? Who will protect my children from me, my church? Thanks be to God that Jesus came with his power and his authority to break the power of sin over me and to give me the Holy Spirit so that I might walk by the Spirit and not carry out the deeds of the flesh. But we want to be a people, Lord, we want to be a light in this world, a city set on a hill where love is happening around this place, in our homes, in our relationships, into our families, friendships, into our gatherings and fellowship. Lord, if the world and the world cannot understand that which is spiritually discerned, but if they need to see it, God, would you help us provide a place where that's what's on display. A people empowered by the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, who love one another. God, bring this near to our lives. Cause your Spirit to engage us in such a deep and powerful way that we don't walk by the flesh, we walk by the Spirit and we experience love together among one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, God bless you guys. Miss you guys. Hopefully we'll see you, hopefully next week or soon.